0: Hello, Dreamers. This is Alicia Marr on Facebook from Washington State. You are listening to California Dreaming, hosted by Roseanne Fred, on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know that there is a little bit more to making a podcast than talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that's simple and easy to work with. That's why I use Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash stream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there with you every step of the way to help you migrate over. You won't lose any of your subscribers in the process either. And if you're new to this, they can get your show up and running. And with a month, for free to try it out using promo code DREAM. What have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You could recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups and you can leave the show a rating and review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to us on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I'd like to thank Faye T., Jeffrey J., Lael C., Lisa B., and Asia R. for joining, and Angie F. for raising her pledge to the next tier. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using email californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and ad-free. So, thank you. Dreamers, I may have talked about this in the group or have mentioned it in passing, but my family and I have been going without cable TV for almost a year now, maybe even more. Because our bill had gone so high, it really wasn't worth it. So I've essentially been without all of my favorite TV shows on Investigation Discovery and A&E, True TV, you know, all the good things. But recently, David signed us up for Sling TV, which streams a good number of cable channels and some local ones too, so I am back in the mix with my true crime shows. The other day, I picked a show at random, on demand on Investigation Discovery, to watch. And the story that came up happened to take place in Los Angeles. I started watching, and it was about a thing I had never heard of before— And I immediately was like, I got to share this story with my dreamers. I even asked around a couple of people, like, have you ever heard of this? And they were like, no, never. And from what I can see, it looks like this case made national news at the time it happened. But for some reason, it totally passed me by. I searched for the story in my podcast directory. And I found one podcast that talked about it almost two years ago. And it was only nine minutes long. So I was like, okay, I got this. It's a story about internet gaming. And when the rivalries that go on between people from behind their computer screens and their keyboards crosses over into real life. When the games go from whatever fantasy world players exist in where they are constantly chasing after being the best of the best becomes real. When things go careening way out of control When the fun turns deadly. And we're going to talk about this. In this 110th episode of California Dreaming. The tale of the game of hoaxes. On the evening of December 28th, 2017. Just a few days removed from Christmas. A 28-year-old Wichita, Kansas father of two named Andrew Finch. Was sitting in the living room of his mother's house watching TV. His mom, Lisa Finch, had gone to her bedroom for the night and his niece retired to her room, along with a couple of other people who shared in the cost of the house. They all went to their respective rooms. A short time later, Andrew noticed that there was some sort of noise or commotion going on outside, so he decided to investigate. As he opened the front door the entire front of the house had been illuminated with police floodlights. The Wichita police department had descended upon the Finch home as a result of an emergency call that had come in that evening from a man who said that he had shot his father and had his mother and brother barricaded in a closet and he had some gasoline and intended to set the house on fire now mind you the presence outside were police officers they were not members of the swat team and did not have the kinds of training usually needed for this type of hostage situation andrew had heard the commotion or he heard something but the officers outside had not yet announced that they were there or why they were there so when andrew began to open the front door he had no idea what he was walking into As I said, floodlights illuminated the entire front side of the house so we can imagine Andrew's confusion as he opened the door and was suddenly blinded by these lights. And just as he stepped out onto the front porch, he was ordered to show his hands. Officers later provided testimony indicating that Andrew had begun to raise his hands, but then he stopped. An officer named Justin Rapp was standing across the street and fired one round from his AR-15. And that shot pierced Andrew's heart and right lung. Andrew Finch was pronounced dead shortly thereafter at St. Francis Hospital. Let's back up a moment and talk more about this emergency call. It was received by an officer on duty working at the Wichita City Hall at 6.18 p.m. on the evening of December 28th, 2017. The caller said his name was Ryan and he was calling to report a domestic disturbance at his house and he provided the address of the home where he said the incident took place. The following is what was said during at least two emergency calls that were made in order to initiate the police response. The caller said, they were arguing, and I shot him in the head, and he's not breathing anymore. Dispatcher. Okay, so what's going on right now? Do you have any weapons on you? Collar. Yeah, I do. Dispatcher. What kind of weapons do you have? Collar. Um, yeah, a handgun. Dispatcher. What kind of handgun? Collar. I don't know. It's my dad's. Dispatcher. What color is it? Caller, black. Dispatcher, where exactly are you in the house? Caller, by the closet. Dispatcher, what closet? Caller, my mom's. Dispatcher, where is that in the house? Caller, in her room. That's where she's at and my little brother. Dispatcher, you have a little brother? Caller, Yeah, I was on the phone with you guys a little earlier telling you about it. I got disconnected. Dispatcher. Okay, we're going to try to get you some help. Where exactly in the house? Like, is this a one-story or a two-story house? Caller. It's one story. Dispatcher. Is the porch in the front of the house or the back of the house? Caller. It's in the back of the house, I guess. I'm just pointing the gun at my mom and my little brother to make sure they stay in the closet. Dispatcher. Is there any way you can put the gun up? Caller. No. Are you guys sending someone over here because I'm definitely not putting it away? Dispatcher. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and stay on the phone with you, okay? Caller. That's fine. Until they get here? Dispatcher. As long as you need me to. Caller. Okay, well, I'm thinking, I already poured gasoline all over the house. I might just set it on fire. Dispatcher. Okay, we don't need you to do that, okay? Caller. In a little bit, I might. Dispatcher. Why would you do that? Caller. Do you have my correct address? Dispatcher. Can you verify it for me again? Caller. It's 1033 West McCormick Street. My zip code is 67213. Dispatcher. So, which way does your house face? Does your front door face north, south, east, west? Caller. I don't know. It's just facing the street. My dad's not breathing. It's giving me anxiety. It's making me paranoid. Hello? Dispatcher. I'm still here, okay? caller me too dispatcher okay are you white black Asian Hispanic are you there caller yeah are you white black Asian Hispanic caller it was an accident dispatcher okay that's fine are you there talk to me hello are you there The dispatcher got no more answers from the caller. So now police are arriving at the address. There is police body cam video of the shooting. The portion of the video the Wichita Police Department released starts with what you can kind of see from the front of the house is Andrew Finch appearing to exit the home through the front door or at least starting to exit the home. At second one of the video, an officer shouts, show your hands at three seconds in andrew is emerging and an officer shouts walk this way at six seconds the officer is about to repeat his previous command of walk this way but he is cut off as he is saying walk by a single gunshot and andrew falls to the ground on his front porch Now, according to a December 29, 2017 article regarding the shooting in the Wichita Eagle, Deputy Police Chief Troy Livingston at a press conference provided a detailed timeline of what exactly happened. When the officers arrived at the address, they were prepared to confront a hostage situation based on what the emergency caller had described. They had surrounded the house on all sides. Andrew opened the front door, and of what followed next, this is what Deputy Chief Livingston said. Officers gave him several verbal commands to put his hands up and walk towards them. The male complied for a short time and then put his hands back down towards his waist. The officers continued to give him verbal commands to put his hands up and he lowered them again. The male then turned towards the officers on the east side of the residence, lowered his hand to the waistband again, and suddenly pulled them back up towards the officers to the east. The officers on the north side of the street feared the male pulled a weapon from his waistband, retrieved a gun, and was in the process of pointing it at the officers to the east. Fearing for those officers' safety, the officer on the north side fired one round. And I told you already that that round pierced Andrew's heart and right lung. Now, of course, they're thinking they have a dead body inside, so they need to clear the house before any medical aid can be given to Andrew. And he is shot through his heart, so he's going to die. I did look it up to see if there is a chance of surviving a shot through the heart, but it depends on which part of the heart is penetrated, the trajectory of the bullet, and you pretty much have to be shot inside a hospital with immediate medical and surgical intervention to manage the gunshot wound. Andrew made it to the hospital approximately 17 minutes after he was shot, but there was nothing that could be done to save his life. After Andrew was shot, four people inside the home were handcuffed and removed, and this included Andrew's niece, who was 17 at the time, his mom, Lisa and two roommates that they shared the house with. According to Lisa, they were all made to pretty much have to step over Andrew in order to be brought out of the house and sat down on the ground in the freezing cold December evening. Officers entered the home and did a thorough search. There was nobody dead inside. No one had been taken hostage. There was no gun on the premises. Andrew himself He did not have a gun on him or near him. He was unarmed when he was struck and that bullet was fired by an officer named Justin Rapp. And I'll have more to say about him as well as Andrew's family towards the end of the story. Nobody dead inside. No guns. No gasoline had been poured around the house. Nothing. Literally nothing was going on inside this home. So what the hell is going on here, dreamers? Well, Andrew was the target of a swatting. Swatting. S-W-A-T-T-I-N-G. Like swatting a fly, so to speak. But it is actually a slight play on words using the acronym SWAT as in the SWAT team. The Special Weapons and Tactical Team. Dreamers, I had never heard of anything like this. So when I started watching this show on Investigation Discovery, my mind was blown. But here's the thing. This is not new. It's a prank. That's a pretty old fashioned prank. And it's just become a little bit more sophisticated over the years. Swatting is making a hoax emergency call in order to send in a heavily armed response team to another person's house. In order to get a heavily armed response, the hopes are to get the SWAT team out there. Essentially a person has to make a serious enough of a report to elicit that level of a response from law enforcement. It has to be something like a bomb threat or a hostage situation or a murder. And swatting is actually on the brink of being classified as an act of terrorism because it is intended to intimidate its target and because of the possibility of there being a threat of injury or death occurring as a result. It is a crime to make a false report that initiates such a response and can result in someone being found guilty and serving jail time and or paying a fine or both as well as having to cover the full cost of the armed response that occurred as a result of the false reporting. So, we have to ask here, what exactly was it that Andrew Finch did that caused someone to want to prank him like this? Well, the answer is, sadly, nothing. He did absolutely nothing. So, how is that possible? Well, I'm going to explain it all to you. And the more you come to understand the chain of events that led to Andrew's tragic death at the hands of law enforcement, the more you're going to find just how unbelievably petty this whole entire thing was to begin with. So let's talk about that and how it was Andrew got caught in the middle of this trifling online feud between two jerks playing Call of Duty World War II. What was the feud over? Well, it was a bet. A wager between two guys playing Call of Duty online. You're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, wow, this must have been some kind of big-time stakes for this to have boiled over into one of the players opting to get revenge by having his opponent's house swatted, right? Well, according to multiple sources, the amount supposedly lost on this wager was $1.50. fifty. That's $1.50. That's it. I wasn't clear exactly on how the bet was made, what the bet was over, and how it was lost. But essentially what happened was an 18-year-old named Casey Viner of North College Hill, Ohio, who went by the online name of Vaporizer, it's like Vaporizer but with a B, 19-year-old Shane Gaskell of Wichita, Kansas, who went by the online name of Miracle, also spelled weird. So I guess these two were teammates in a game, and while they were playing, Shane accidentally killed Casey, and this caused Casey to get upset, and it grew into a pretty heated argument between the two players. At some point, Casey threatened to swat Shane. Shane. So Shane responded by daring Casey to do it and even went so far as to post his address and basically said, go ahead and try. The thing is, the address that Shane gave wasn't his address. I did read somewhere that it was a random address, but I did read and confirm that it was a previous address of Shane's. Whatever the case... At the time that this happened, he was not living there and this was no longer his address. But it was Andrew's address. So dreamers, you know how some people get when they're dared to do something? There are some that will never back down from a dare. My husband is like that. I always like to think about the time that David was dared to eat one of these really, really super hot chili peppers Of course, he could not go with his better judgment and say no, right? So yeah, he was messed up for like a day afterwards. Can't ever turn away from a dare. Well, this, of course, is much more serious than a dare to eat a chili pepper. Casey made note of the address that Shane provided him and contacted a third young man who was relatively well known in the online gaming community for his swatting activities. Online and on Twitter, he was known as Swatistic. But in real life, he was really a 25-year-old nobody from Los Angeles, California, named Tyler Barris. He was literally about nothing except for being a Swatter. He had no home. He had no job. He had no education. And he did the Swatting from free computers and Internet at the local library... And he used some sort of app on his phone to conceal his identity when he was calling. Tyler was the person that Casey got in touch with to initiate the swatting. So how did we get from a petty online feud to Andrew Finch being shot dead on his own front porch? Let's back up and begin with Tyler Barris and his notoriety, so to speak, when it came to swatting people there is a journalist with Wired magazine named Brendan Koenner, who I guess I want to say sort of took a liking to Tyler Barris. From his writings and his interviews that he's given on the case, Brendan comes across as incredibly sympathetic to Tyler and all the things that led up to the events of December 28th, 2017. And as we go along, because this journalist came to be so close to this case and to Tyler as well, As I believe they continue to communicate to an extent, even to this day, and Brendan Cohener has written numerous articles for Wired Magazine about this case, I will be referencing his work periodically. By the time Tyler was 22 years old, his father had already passed away and his mother pretty much walked out on him. So he was taken in by his grandma, Wendy Gregory, It does not appear that Tyler was working at this time, nor was he attending college. He spent the bulk of his time playing first-person shooter games online with his Xbox, specifically a game entitled Halo. His grandma, though he had his share of responsibilities around the house, did not appear to be making too much of an effort to encourage Tyler to get off the games, to get out of the house, to sign up for some classes at the community college, or to look for a part-time job in order to find some sort of balance in his life. It's hard to say why exactly that was, but it is a fact that Tyler not only did not finish high school, he didn't even finish middle school. And he went to a middle school that I read as being a school for gifted children. So there is no doubt that Tyler was a bright young man with a great deal of potential in life. That being the case, It's going to be a challenge to find even an entry-level job anywhere these days, as most places tend to require the prerequisite of at least a high school diploma to even be considered. As for Tyler's grandmother, Wendy, the only thing that I can really think of that was going on with her is perhaps she felt a great deal of heartache over the hands that life had dealt Tyler, having lost his dad and then to be abandoned by his mom. It's possible she just did not want to push him. Maybe she saw him as emotionally fragile and felt it was just easier to allow him to indulge in the things that he was happy doing. And if that is being on an Xbox day and night, then so be it. Even Brendan Cohener said in an interview on Investigation Discovery that one of the most tragic aspects of the story is the fact that Tyler's grandmother allowed his Xbox to replace his primary caregivers. The Xbox kept Tyler occupied. The Xbox was essentially his babysitter. Now that certainly doesn't cast Tyler's grandmother in the best light, which I don't necessarily feel is fair to her, It's not an unusual thing for grandparents to step in and raise their grandchildren for one reason or another. Because we are true crime fans, we see it often in cases when perhaps one parent is killed and the other parent is convicted of said killing. Oftentimes the task of finishing raising their children falls onto the shoulders of the grandparents. And they've all been through all this already. They are many years removed from having raised their own kids And then suddenly they find themselves starting all over again. But now they're older and they might not exactly know what it means to raise a kid in the contemporary world. There's a whole new set of societal issues that did not exist when they raised their own children the first time around. Now, granted, there are some grandparents out there who are pretty hip to what the kids are up to these days. But I mean, come on, think about your own parents and grandparents. What if they woke up one day and had to raise your kids because you suddenly found yourself incapable of doing so for one reason or another? Thinking about my mom raising my daughter makes me shudder, to be honest. And from the sounds of what was going on with Tyler and his grandmother, it feels like she was a little bit out of touch with the things going on with him. And of course, we can't not fault her for that, for being ill-prepared when it came to raising a kid, a millennial. Brendan, in one of his articles, described Tyler as nihilistic. And I tend to agree that that is an accurate description of the young man. It just does not seem as though Tyler's grandmother was equipped to deal with some of the issues that were going on with him. Because by all accounts, Tyler was smart. But whatever caused him to drop out of high school before he reached the ninth grade is unclear. That would make the last time that he was in school was when he was around the age of 12 or 13 or so. And for the next 10 years to almost a dozen years, all he did was play video games on his computer or on his Xbox day in and day out. That encompassed his entire existence. It had eventually become his goal to be one of the top players in the world with the hopes of being able to reach a level so elite that he could actually do this as a profession. And actually make some money doing so. Full disclosure dreamers, I did not really know that it was a thing to play video games for a living. I don't play video games but to me it seems so all-consuming but I had to look it up to see how someone becomes a professional gamer. And according to Intel.com there are eight easy steps apparently and oddly enough it sounds pretty similar to a recipe for making a living doing a podcast. Step one is to pick your game. Find the game that you are good at and pretty much practice around the clock against the most skilled players in the world and play until you become an expert at it. Once you do that, you have to build a reputation as both a single player and a team player. Step two is to stay motivated to keep practicing at being the best and winning at these games and earning money are the two biggest motivators for an online professional gamer. Step three is to practice. Study the best playing tactics, watch a lot of hours of game play, and also learn how to lose because even when you lose, it's still practicing. Step four is to get your gear together. A gamer needs all the right equipment that will allow for proper testing of skills against the competition. And this includes just the right computer that's made for gaming, but also a laptop that's suited for gaming so you can continue to play while on the road. And even better, if you have everything that customized to what you need so you can keep your hardware up to date. Step five is to join a gaming community because being a professional gamer is not only being skilled on your own, but also being part of a team. Step six is to find a team. That can only happen after you establish yourself as a serious competitor. But if you are really good at your game of choice, then teams will seek you out. You can also try out for teams or you can develop your own. Step seven is to enter tournaments, but only after you become masterful at your game of choice. Join as many online and local tournaments as you can. And these things apparently take place year round. But it is for purposes of practicing, as the only tournaments where the win really matters is in the pro circuit. Winning at that level will skyrocket your reputation online, but also earn you money. Being a professional gamer is legit work, according to this article. And the eighth and final step is to find sponsors. And sponsors will provide gamers with the equipment that they need to compete. In order to make a living doing this, you've got to get sponsored. Okay, as I said, I did not know that all of this was a thing, but that is what Tyler was aspiring to do, to reach the elite level of a professional gamer. And according to Brendan at The Wired, Tyler seriously aspired to get there, and he played pretty much around the clock for years in order to refine his gaming skills. So maybe that's what his grandma was hoping would eventually happen for Tyler, which is perhaps why she allowed him to remain glued to his computer 24-7. I don't know. I mean, how many of our parents and grandparents would be like, get out into the world and find a real job, right? Mine would not be pleased with me sitting at home in front of a computer for hours on end, which is ironically what I find myself doing these days with our show here, but that's also why I haven't exactly told my mom about this little thing we've got going on here. Anyway, All I'm saying is perhaps Tyler's grandma understood what he was aspiring towards and just stepped back and left him alone to do his thing. Whatever the case was, it does not seem that grandma interfered or intruded on what Tyler did when he was on his computer. Now, to be clear again, I am not a professional at anything, and I do not know the kind of toll that the years and years of being so focused on a video game, especially during some really important years growing up, becoming a teenager and getting into young adulthood can have on a person. But I can imagine it's not the healthiest way to experience those formative years. And according to an article in The Wired, because of all the years that Tyler spent in this online world, it did have a deep impact on the manner in which Tyler perceived and coped with the real world surrounding him. Now, I can only assume, based on events to come, that the road to getting into the pro world of online gaming was not as smooth as Tyler thought it would be. I don't really know all that much about playing video games online. The whole thing just sort of passed me by. I've never played, my kid never played. And David, I asked him, and when he was younger, he said he played Halo online, but it never really seemed like something that he did endlessly for hours on end, maybe during the summertime, but during the school year, not so much. But it had me wondering, is there really such a thing as the best player in the world? I mean, at any given moment, isn't there always going to be someone else out there that's better than you? And that perhaps being the so-called top player in the world changes every single time someone else happens to win a tournament. Whoever wins the most money or gets the most sponsors or the combination of all of that. And the official top player changes with every new tournament. It didn't seem like Tyler was getting anywhere close to being part of the elite. And I honestly don't know what he could have done differently to have changed that for himself because it's hard at least for me to understand how you get to that point. It's not like being the fastest runner on the planet or the greatest swimmer or the best quarterback where an athlete becomes the best at what they do over the course of years and years of dedication and practice. There's something that's intangible when it comes to gaining a measure of notoriety as a gamer, because there's so many other potential great players out there. The possibilities to me seem infinite. Being great at the game was eluding Tyler, and it was beginning to frustrate him. And along with all of this, rivalries begin to form, and with that comes the trash-talking. And the trash-talking can very easily escalate. Players can become quite angry and argumentative with one another, And sometimes those rivalries cross over into real life and that is exactly what happened to Tyler in February of 2015. In the middle of the night, as Tyler and his grandma slept, their home was suddenly surrounded by heavily armed law enforcement officers, helicopters, and squad cars. I mean, it was a huge response to an emergency call made by one of Tyler's online gaming rivals. Someone had called given Tyler's address, with the caller claiming that he had shot and killed his brother. As Tyler was down on the ground with automatic weapons trained on him, he told the officers, I don't have a brother, but he knew what this was all about. He had just gotten swatted. Tyler had apparently made someone online really mad, and they retaliated by having the SWAT team sent to his house by making a false report to emergency services. And the call had to be serious enough, as I said earlier, like a murder or a hostage thing, that would bring about this heavily armed response. And sometimes these swatting events are captured on camera from the swatting target's own webcam. And these videos end up getting posted online as a means of intimidating players. For Tyler, getting swatted was a turning point for him. It didn't intimidate him. He was enamored with it. As a young man who really had very little going on in real life, the idea of swatting seemed like such a cool and powerful thing to be able to pull off. To be able to cause all of these militarized law enforcement officers to come out in force with helicopters and automatic weapons and to cause them to do what he wanted them to do, to Tyler, it would be a power trip to make something like that happen against some of his rivals. Now, for the life of me, I have no idea why these guys want to give out their home addresses to people online, but if I had to guess, I'd say it all goes back to not backing down on a threat or a dare. And with that, Tyler's online gaming aspirations shifted from being an elite professional gamer to becoming a masterful swatter. Now, a strange part of this, or at least to me it's strange, is journalist Brennan Cohener opined that for Tyler being able to initiate a swatting incident was akin to turning police officers into real life video game characters. I really don't understand that line of thinking, but again, we're talking about a 22 year old who had nothing going on in his life for the past decade except for playing games online. So that would at least in part explain this weird logic. And how he not only felt as though this behavior was okay, but he also got off on it too. It was a powerful thing for a guy who had little to no power otherwise. So, Tyler set out to become a so-called expert swatter. He figured out how to maintain his anonymity by hiding behind private networks and untraceable phone numbers. That way, he would be able to make these SWATting calls without his identity being found out. He started making up scenarios that he would use in his calls to emergency services that would be certain to bring about a heavy SWAT team response. And from his phone, he downloaded an app that allowed him to make the calls from a number that could not be traced back to him or his location. He finally made his first SWATting call not too long after he was the target. And Tyler was able to watch his online rival get swatted because he was still playing and live streaming when officers burst into his bedroom. And it was highly amusing for Tyler as well. It gave him a pretty big rush that he was able to pull that off to get those officers to bust in on his rival as he sat there and watched it all unfold. The power that Tyler felt as a result of that was a feeling that he wanted to continue to duplicate over and over again, which he would do many times over. Now, in his interview on Investigation Discovery, Brandon Cohener described Tyler's desire to continue making the hoax emergency calls as an addiction. That Tyler got such a rush or a high off of doing these swattings He kept wanting to do it more and more. And the rush that he felt kept needing to be satisfied. I get what Brendan is describing here. And I understand if you like something and you like the way doing something makes you feel, then you're going to want to keep repeating it so you can experience those feelings all over again. But to me, this is different from other addictions out there in that I tend to view an addiction as something that is self-destructive. Like, if someone is addicted to drinking or drugs or gambling, prolonged involvement in any of those things is eventually going to lead to an unraveling of your own life. You're going to start losing things that are important to you. Maybe your job or your car or your home, your friends, your loved ones. Oftentimes, what ends up happening is... You'll tell yourself, just once more and I'll stop. Just one more time, let me get this out of my system. My daughter's dad said that all the time when it came to the drug binges. This is the last time, just one last time, but it rarely is ever the last time. But what Tyler is doing is destructive beyond just himself He's doing it to cause harm or embarrassment to other people, not to himself, to people that he really doesn't even know. So for me, that sort of sets it apart from more typical addictions. Addiction in its traditional sense does hurt others around the addict, but the person being harmed the most is the person who is using or drinking. Everyone else can choose to walk away while the addict carries on with the self-destructive behavior. What Tyler was doing here, as we will come to find out, is destructive to so many other people who unwittingly got caught up in Tyler's pranks. He does so without any regards for the feelings of others. And we talk about people like this all the time. People that have antisocial disorders like narcissists or sociopaths. They don't care about others, and they do things and engage in behaviors that the average person would not do, such as making prank emergency calls. Is it possible that Tyler had little to no understanding just how dangerous what he was doing actually was? I don't know. He's not a stupid kid. He's sending police officers into what they believe to be an incredibly volatile, potentially deadly situation. These officers are heavily armed and they are on edge, not knowing exactly what it is that they're about to walk into. How could Tyler not know how deadly the games he was playing could potentially be? Or he may have really convinced himself that nothing could go wrong. These are professional law enforcement officers, right? They're supposed to know what they're doing when confronting a serious situation tyler may have really convinced himself that it was all just fun and games so on september 29th 2015 tyler was sitting in the living room with his grandma while she was watching her local news channel as they sat and watched tyler suddenly turned to his grandma and said you know how much you like this new show I bet you I could have this entire building where they have the news studio completely evacuated if I wanted to. Grandma had no idea what he was talking about. And he told her again, I could shut down that whole studio pretty much just like that. He could clear the place out. But Grandma just continued to look at him perplexed. And the following day, On September 30th, 2015, the Glendale Police Department received an incoming call from someone who identified himself as Alex. On the call, he said he placed several backpacks inside ABC News Studio, and those backpacks each contained a bomb, which were set to go off in 10 minutes. And with that, Tyler was able to pull off what he told his grandma he would be able to do. ABC News Studios in response to the bomb threat cleared out all the floors of their building and before long, ABC outlets across California began reporting on the purported bomb threat. And the fact that Tyler caused his grandmother's regular news program to shut down was a huge thrill for him. Calling in bomb threats, as it turned out, was a step up for Tyler from making prank emergency phone calls. This, for him, was next level, and he was so pleased with himself as a result. Canine detection dogs were brought in, but no bombs were found on the premises. And nine days later, there was a very similar threat that was called in, but because of the recent hoax, the response to this threat was much more subdued. The studio wasn't even evacuated the second time around, and again, The place was cleared as having no explosives once the bomb squad went through the building with their dogs again. Because the number used to call in the bomb threat was a spoof number with a Tennessee area code, detectives really weren't getting anywhere in their investigation into these hoax calls. But what they didn't know was that they had grandma on their side on this case. Now, it seems leading up to the bomb threat that Tyler had made to ABC News Studios, the relationship between Tyler and his grandma had been becoming increasingly strained, which isn't surprising. He was already 22 years old, and I mean, how long did he expect his grandma to put up with him playing video games all hours of the day and night? Even if he had been able to tell her about his aspirations of becoming a professional gamer, that really wasn't coming to fruition either. Or she had to have some inkling that Making money playing video games was a long shot. I mean, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it, right? I kind of get the feeling that no matter how hard Tyler tried to make it to that level, there was always going to be a certain part of him or a part of his personality that was going to hold him back to keep him from ever making it. I tend to associate it with an overall lack of motivation or drive, And maybe it's also because he carried around a certain amount of emotional baggage too related to losing his dad and his mom at such a young age. Some obstacles in life are really hard to overcome and I don't know if Tyler was equipped to do so and to do so successfully. And Grandma is no fool. Tyler just bragged to her the afternoon before that if he wanted to, he could clear out the entire new studio just like that. So the next day when she tuned in to her news channel and saw everyone in the building evacuated, standing around outside and news anchors reporting on a bomb threat, she knew. She knew her grandson had been the one behind the whole thing. So she confronted him and he apparently just blew her off. It's no big deal. Nobody got hurt. It was all in good fun. So just move on, Grandma. But she wasn't going to move on and she wasn't going to allow Tyler to get away with making these bomb threats. I don't know how much she knew or didn't know about his swatting activities. I'm assuming she didn't know all that much about it based on how she reacted when she put it together that he was responsible for the bomb threat. But she did not go directly to police. She actually confided in a friend who happened to be a campus police officer at Cal State Northridge that it was her grandson, Tyler, that was behind the bomb threats at the news station. That campus police officer turned around and contacted investigators on the case and provided them with the name of their suspect, Tyler Barris. Investigators contacted Tyler's grandmother and asked to speak to her about the case. That's when we learned a little bit more about Tyler's background. She had become his main caregiver and pretty much was the only adult figure in his life after his father died in an automobile accident while Tyler was still a baby. Tyler's mom, who was his grandmother's daughter, struggled most of her life with addiction and found herself in and out of jail pretty regularly, everything from drug possession to charges related to her having to turn to sex work to earn money. She told investigators that her grandson, who did not have a job, spent almost all of his time playing Halo online. And that the day before the bomb threat at ABC, he actually said to her that he would be able to clear that building out if he wanted to. So when the bomb scare went down the following afternoon, it was too much of a coincidence. She knew that he must have had something to do with it. So she confronted him. And according to Brennan Cohener's article on this case, when she did confront Tyler, he didn't deny it. As a matter of fact, he admitted that it was he who did it. But he also followed that up with a threat. If she snitched on him, he would beat her down into a bloody pulp and blow up her house. She did not take his threats lightly, as she was certain that he would not hesitate to make good on his threats against her. It wasn't long before police showed up at Tyler's grandma's house to take him into custody for the bomb threats in a search of his bedroom. They confiscated his phone on which they eventually recovered more than 40,000 messages and those messages revealed that this bomb threat to ABC studios was not an isolated one-time affair. Tyler Barris had been responsible for numerous bomb threats that spanned the country. He instigated the evacuations of several high schools and universities where his online Halo rivals attended with the intentions of causing his friends to enjoy a day off from school, since all classes would be canceled as a result of his bomb threats. He had also targeted the last school where he was enrolled, the middle school for gifted students. He initiated a bomb threat there as well. And then he would turn around and brag about it all on social media. Tyler's phone revealed his swatting activities as well as bomb threats. So this guy was definitely a menace to law enforcement and to society as a whole. Tyler Barris would end up pleading no contest to two counts of making false bomb threats and was sentenced to spend a little more than two and a half years to be served in the county jail. He was released on January 20th, 2017. When Tyler got out, he really had no place to go other than his grandma's house. But like I said, grandma had taken Tyler's threats to do her harm and blow up her house seriously. Is Tyler a serious threat? Personally, I don't think so. He is really, really skinny, and I'd be surprised if he even weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. And because he acts the way that he does behind a smartphone and a computer screen... I don't view him as a threat to anyone. He comes across to me as a coward, especially since he so freely would make such an awful threat against his own grandmother. And she is totally not wrong in fearing him and feeling the need to protect herself from him. So when he showed up at her house on the day after he got out of jail, he was taken into custody again. She had the locks changed on her place and she had applied for and was given an order of protection against him. He again pleaded no contest to violating the order and was given another year in jail. Tyler was released a little more than six months later in August of 2017, at which time he was 25 years old, and the outlook was grim. He no longer had a place to stay. What little family he had left had all turned on him, and not that he had any genuine prospects for the future before. If he had any at all, Those were all dashed as well. So Tyler ended up taking refuge in a shelter in downtown Los Angeles. So at this point, Tyler was in a very low place. What little he had before he went to jail was gone. And really all that was left was his online persona and the gaming community he had long been a part of. But in order to get back there, he needed to find a way to get on the internet. And it wasn't too long after he got settled in that homeless shelter, he discovered that there was a public library within walking distance of the shelter and the library offered free Wi-Fi and computers that he could use. And that was going to be what he focused on, getting back to where he was before he was arrested, trying to reclaim the prominence he had once had, not only as a gamer, but really what he had become infamous for, the swattings. That's what he wanted to start up again, so he could make a name for himself. Before long, he was back to using his untraceable phone number app and started calling in bomb threats across the country. In his own mind, Tyler Barris viewed this as akin to his own personal real-world game. And he either doesn't think or he doesn't believe that there is the potential for this type of thing to go awry, not considering that people can get hurt or worse, or he doesn't care. As the end of 2017 was approaching, Tyler was regularly calling in bomb threats across the United States. And then on November 28, 2017, Tyler called in a bomb threat at J.R. Arnold High School in Panama City Beach, Florida. Not only did he say that there were bombs at the school, he said that they were going to detonate in 15 minutes, and he was on campus with a gun. Lieutenant J.R. Telementez of the Panama City Beach Police Department would later be assigned to investigate the bomb threat, which was a thing that made him and his department very upset. At this point in time, in 2017, our country was still reeling from some very significant and deadly mass shooting events. There was the November 13th Rancho Tehama Reserve shooting in California that killed six. A little more than a week prior to that, there was the November 5th Sutherland Springs Church shooting in Texas that killed 27 people. A month prior to that was the October 1st Las Vegas shooting where 59 people died. A week before that was the September 24th Burnett Chapel shooting in Anatok, Tennessee, killing one person. Two weeks before that was the September 10th Plano, Texas shooting where nine people died. Thirteen days prior to that was the August 28th Clovis, New Mexico library shooting where two people died. There were 14 more mass shootings across the United States leading up to the call that Tyler Barris had made, claiming a bomb threat and an active shooter on the campus of a high school all the way across the country. And for Lieutenant Talamantes, this was the worst possible call he could get. A shooting and bombs at a high school. And of course, these things are taken very, very seriously. The response to that threat was swift and massive. First, the school was put on lockdown. Then everyone on campus subsequently was evacuated. The news of the threat spread quickly. Investigators swept the school and found nothing. No bombs, no active shooter, no threat whatsoever. And Lieutenant Talamantes was mad. He took this to heart, and he was determined to figure out where that phone call came from and who made it. He had nothing to work with except for an untraceable phone number generated by the internet. So Lieutenant Talamantes started off by trying to send a text message to the number. He just said, hey... And then tried to play it off like he must have gotten the wrong number. And being as full of himself as Tyler Barris was, within a couple of text messages, he was telling Lieutenant Telementos that he's a swatter and he just evacuated Arnold High School in Florida. So Telementos knows he's got the right guy, but this guy could be anybody and he could be anywhere. So Telementeus decided his best course of action would be to try and become friends with Tyler. And the hope was that the more he could get Tyler talking, eventually he would start revealing more and more about who he was and where he lived. And all the while, as Lieutenant Telementeus and Tyler are exchanging text messages, Telementis had wondered if Tyler had any kind of suspicion if he was a cop. Because Tyler was quick to chat with him almost too quickly. Maybe Tyler was the one playing him. But the more the two men got to talking, it soon became apparent to Telemantes that Tyler was a pretty lonely guy, even would describe him as pathetic, but also in desperate need to talk to anyone who would want to talk to him about his swatting activities. So Telemantes tried to make it seem as though he was impressed and interested in his abilities to pull off these swattings, And luckily for Telementez, Tyler was the type of person who enjoyed discussing it and bragging about it. Tyler had a great deal of pride that these major armed responses were initiated because of him. Eventually, Tyler wanted to get off the burner number that he had and asked Telementez to hit him up on Twitter and gave him his handle, SWATistic, which is a mashup of SWAT and autistic, based on how the handle is spelled. Telemendez used the Twitter handle Jerry. In the meantime, as Lieutenant Telemendez is trying to figure out who and where SWATistic is, he is confident that Tyler doesn't know that he is being investigated for the bomb scare at the Florida school, and he is continuing to target places for more of his hoax phone calls. And Tyler is picking more prominent high-profile locations. And what exactly does that mean? Well, he started off calling in a bomb threat against federal buildings. For example, the Federal Communications Commission or the FCC was having a meeting that was being broadcasted live and it was suddenly evacuated and the building was searched using detection dogs, all of which was streaming live as it happened. And Tyler got to watch as his work unfolded in real time in a federal structure. And all of this was happening from the free Wi-Fi and the free computers just up the street from his homeless shelter. This was literally the highlight of Tyler's day, making this sort of thing happen and being able to watch it unfold. It is pretty sad and pathetic, but the thrill for Tyler was a huge deal for him. It literally became his entire identity being known for this stuff. And he bragged about it on Twitter by saying, I swatted the FCC and MLG Dallas, which is Major League Gaming. I'm not busted yet. If you can't pull off a SWAT without getting busted, you're not elite hacking god. It's that simple. And I had to look up the word LEET on Urban Dictionary, spelled L-E-E-T, and it means elite. And it can also be spelled using numbers such as 1337 or L33T. That tweet was sent out on December 22nd, 2017. Back in Florida, Talamantis was beginning to feel the pressure to try and figure out who this swatter was, as he can see that Swatistic is stepping up his game and continuing to phone in fake bomb scares, and he's picking riskier targets. So he decided to try and get to him from a different angle, using the assistance of a colleague. A young female officer on the force. And the idea was to try and get Tyler to send a photo, and he figured the best and easiest way might be to try and get a good looking woman flirting with him. Enter into the investigation, patrol officer Savannah Gorman. And the plan was this her name was going to be Gloria, and she was going to pretend to be Lieutenant Talamantis' aka Jerry's girlfriend. And she's cute a pretty blonde so talamantes is thinking she might just have an easier time getting more personal information out of swatistic than he can so talamantes tells officer gorman just start talking to him tell him you're my girlfriend and see what you can get out of him maybe he will tell you his name where he's from and hopefully swap some selfies but talamantes was clear When the conversation gets to the point where you ask for pictures, make sure not to show her full face. So using the Twitter handle GloriaGamer4, she sent a picture of herself, like with a baseball cap on, sort of obscuring part of her face. And Tyler replied back, Is this a trap? He questioned her as to how old her Twitter account was and the fact that she barely used it. And she explained that she had been with the guy who asked her not to use the social media account anymore. Before long, Tyler started becoming flirtatious with Officer Gorman. So once he started telling her how beautiful she was, she was able to ask, what about you? Send me a pic. In the beginning, Tyler was hesitant to send a picture or to give out too much information about himself. But it didn't take long before his ego got the best of him and he finally sent out a selfie to Officer Gorman. It wasn't the best or clearest picture of Tyler. He pulled a hoodie over his head and his face was partially obscured by the phone itself as he took the picture in a mirror and sent that to Officer Gorman on November 30th, 2017. But it was a start. So without straight out asking for his name, his date of birth, or where he lived, the officers decided to try to get more information about him in a roundabout way. So Officer Gorman sent a message asking if he had any tattoos and says that she loves tats on guys. He said that he didn't. She asked him if he was seeing anyone, telling him that he's pretty cute, and he said no, he wasn't. Eventually, she asked if he was from PC, which, of course, is Panama City Beach, and that's when he revealed he was in California and even went further to reveal that he was in the Los Angeles area. So now Lieutenant Alamantez wanted to try to narrow down where exactly in Los Angeles Swatistic is, because, you know, it's a pretty big town. He wanted to try to get Officer Gorman to get him to send another picture Maybe with some stuff or landmarks in the background so they can try and narrow down his exact location. So she sent him a message and said, are you sure you're not 17? You look really young. Send me another pic. So he sent her another picture and it was a more clear shot of his face and it appeared as though he was lying down in a bed. And there was a point in the back-and-forth message exchange that Swatistic revealed his actual name to Officer Gorman. He told her his name was Tyler. So they've got some pretty good information. Now it's just a matter of narrowing down where in Los Angeles Tyler is located. So Telementos knew that a thing was going to happen in Los Angeles in a few weeks' time. Elon Musk's SpaceX was set to launch its Falcon 9 rocket at dusk on December 22, 2017. And the whole event was going to light up the entire sky over Los Angeles. And he knew that no matter where in Los Angeles Tyler was located, he would have a clear vantage point of the liftoff. So the idea was to try and ask him what was going on in the skies over L.A., and if he could go outside and send a picture of the launch, which he did. And when Talamantes received the photo from Tyler, he could see the downtown Los Angeles skyline in the background. And based on where Tyler was standing, when he snapped that picture using Google Maps, Talamantes was able to pinpoint Tyler's location within a couple blocks of that photo. He was closing in on Tyler, but it was not going to be in time. And this brings us to the events of December 28th, 2017. Tyler was at the library like he was every day, but by this time, he had become a pretty well-established swatter. People were really wanting to use the services and they were willing to pay him to do it anywhere between $10 and $50. He would swat their target. He charged more for a fake bomb threat. His reputation for pulling off these hoaxes grew even more when he was able to evacuate the major league gaming event in Dallas, Texas twice. He was going around telling people that he made $700 doing that one. Now, there were times when Tyler would back off and let the target of the swatting off the hook, which only bolstered the sense of power and control that he felt he had over people. It was a very commanding feeling for Tyler, who otherwise literally had nothing else going on for himself. And along with this came a feeling of being important, being validated as a real force in the gaming world to be able to pull off these swattings. The people actually started paying him for that. For Tyler, it was a huge boost. So on that day, Thursday, December 28th, Casey Viner, aka Vaporizer, reached out to SWATistic via Twitter and told him that he needed his skills. Casey Viner himself had been swatted by Tyler 10 days earlier, and that is how he came to know Tyler and the services that he offered. Tyler asked him, what do you need? And Casey told him that he needed to SWAT a guy named Miracle, aka Shane Gaskill. So Tyler went ahead and started following Shane on Twitter, And when Shane saw that, he right away dared him to go ahead and try it. He said he'd be waiting. And that's when Shane gave Tyler the address on McCormick Street in Wichita, Kansas. The house where Andrew Finch lived with his mom, his niece, who was 17 years old at the time, and a couple of roommates. Shane Gaskell even followed that up with a promise that he would have him and Casey in jail, that he had all the evidence he needed to get him busted. And that is when Andrew Finch became an unwitting participant in this online gaming feud between two people that he didn't even know, who played a game that he had nothing to do with. He was just a guy minding his own business, doing what he needed to do to take care of his family. It was just being a dad, just being a son, just being Andrew. That's all he was doing on the night of December 28th. And from nearly 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometers away from Wichita, a young man that Andrew doesn't even know or have anything to do with is about to send a heavily armed law enforcement response team to his front door at the behest of a gamer who lost a $1.50 bet in Call of Duty. And the target of the swatting who dared Tyler to do it? He sent Tyler taunting, trash-talking messages. But Tyler was not one to respond with words anymore. He was going to initiate the swatting. These guys had no idea that they were playing games with somebody's life, somebody's father, and somebody's son. The tragedy that was to unfold on that evening is only compounded by the fact that it was so incredibly petty. Tyler's call came in to dispatch in Wichita at 6.18 p.m. that night. And I've already described how the things went down from there at the beginning of the story. By the time the dust settled, 28-year-old Andrew Finch would be dead of a single gunshot wound through the heart fired by Wichita police officer Justin Rapp. The following information came from Brendan Cohener's 2018 article entitled It Started as an Online Gaming Prank, Then It Turned Deadly. Andrew came from a tight-knit family. He had three siblings, sister Adriana, Dominica and brother Jerome and they often found themselves staying at their grandmother's home, a small trailer on the east side of town while they were growing up. Andrew was very close with his family and very protective and it was in 2002 when tragedy struck the family Andrew's sister, Adriana, died in an automobile accident at the age of 20. She left behind two young children of her own who would now be raised by their grandmother, as their own dad had been deported to Mexico. So it was left to grandma, Lisa Finch. And she, of course, had struggles of her own as a single mom, along with the plethora of health conditions that left her reliant upon disability benefits. Andrew, as things would have it, would start to take on the role of the father figure with his sister's children as much as he could. But when their mother died, he was still in high school, so there was only really so much that he could do. Andrew graduated in 2007, but he kind of, sort of, drifted aimlessly in life, at least to an extent. He tried taking some vocational courses at the local community college, But that didn't really pan out for him. He wasn't really ready to buckle down with the studies. Either he had a hard time focusing, or he was bored, or a combination of the two. Andrew was an artist, and he really enjoyed drawing. And his mom tried to encourage him to find a way to put those talents to work for him by possibly getting into some graphic design courses, But that really didn't spark any sort of interest in him either. Andrew continued to find menial labor jobs here and there whenever he could. And when Andrew turned 20, he too became a dad to a son named Aiden. Aiden's mom was Andrew's girlfriend, but their relationship was rocky and they often found themselves broken up and back together and broken up again. With another mouth to feed, Andrew eventually turned to drug dealing in order to supplement his income. But things took a drastic turn in October of 2012, when Andrew was headed to make a drug deal and he was armed. As he was driving, police attempted to pull him over for an expired registration, and that caused Andrew to make the decision to try and flee from the traffic stop, resulting in a high-speed chase through the streets of Wichita culminating in Andrew driving his vehicle into someone's backyard pool. Andrew would end up serving a year in prison, and it was during that time he became overwhelmed with the guilt of having left his mother alone to take care of not only his deceased sister's children, but now his son as well. The police chase and the stint in jail was a game-changer for Andrew. Once he got out of prison, and in short order, he had a second child with his on-again, off-again girlfriend in March of 2016. It was a girl they named Danica. It was her birth, coupled with his time in jail, that set him straight for good. He landed a job as a cook at a Sonic restaurant in order to provide for his family properly. He continued to refine his artistic skills with aspirations of one day maybe operating his own tattoo shop. He also started attending church regularly. Though Brendan Cohener did not indicate whether or not Andrew was involved in street gangs, from what I was reading and seeing, it seemed as though he may have been involved in street gang activity when he was dealing drugs, but that's an inference I'm making based on some of the research into this case. So the house on McCormick Street, where Andrew lived with his mom, his niece and nephew and a couple of others who shared the cost of rent and lived there too, they had all just moved into the place in March of 2017. On the evening of December 28th, the winter night was frigid. Andrew was in the living room. His niece, Adelina, who was 17 years old at the time, and his mom were settling into their rooms for the evening. It was at approximately 6.27 p.m. when Andrew heard that noise that caused him to investigate what was going on outside. It was difficult to see through the small windows that lined the front of the house, so he decided to open the front door. He thought maybe it was some of his nieces or nephews' friends that often stopped by to visit, but it wasn't their friends. There was a team of heavily armed Wichita police officers responding to Tyler Barris' emergency call the transcript of which I read to you in the beginning. And remember, these are not trained SWAT team members who are usually the ones dispatched to respond to a potential hostage crisis. These were regular patrol officers responding to the radio call that went out initiated by Tyler's emergency call. Now, let's be clear. Tyler Barris is not actually calling 911. When he makes his calls, he calls law enforcement directly in the city where his swatting target is located. In this case, his call came in to City Hall in Wichita. Nobody relayed the fact that this hostage situation call was not phoned into 911, which would have deemed it unusual and may have raised some red flags that something wasn't right with this call. When officers arrived at the Finch home, Two of them noticed what they described as the shadow of someone who looked like they were moving in an up and down manner, and to them it appeared as if someone was administering CPR. So this further bolstered their belief that someone's life was in danger inside the home. Officers began to slowly approach the front door from each side of the house, with officers stationed across the street with their rifles trained on the house in case it was necessary for them to open fire. The plan was to use their loudspeaker from outside to try and talk to the apparent hostage taker inside. But before the officer who was going to announce their presence outside on the loudspeaker, Andrew started to open the front door slowly. He stepped outside and began opening the screen door, at which point he stepped onto the front porch. The floodlights completely blinded Andrew And it was at this point, commands began being yelled at him to raise his hands. I told you that it was only a matter of seconds. But for whatever reason, Andrew was about to raise his hands. He appeared to lower one of them. At least, that is according to police. We can't say for sure why he was not complying 100%. But he just wasn't being as still as the police wanted or needed him to be. In that moment, as he stepped out onto this porch of blinding confusion. Whatever the case, that small gesture of moving his arm slightly downward led Officer Justin Rapp to make the snap decision from all the way across the street. Watching the porch through the scope of his AR-15, which was not a scope that was magnifying what he was looking at, he decided that Andrew was moving his hand downward to reach for a weapon he must have had tucked in his waistband. Officer Rapp fired one round that slipped through the slightly ajar screen door, entered into Andrew's chest, piercing his heart and sending him falling backwards into the home. Andrew's niece, Annalena, came downstairs when she heard the commotion and discovered her uncle laying in the entranceway of their home bleeding from his chest. Before she could even take in what she was seeing, Wichita police officers came barreling through the door. Adelina, Andrew's mom Lisa, and two other residents of the home were all handcuffed, forced to step over Andrew as he lay dying and seated them outside on the ground in the freezing cold. Officers searched the entire house looking for this Ryan, the name that Tyler Barris gave in his phone call, but there was no Ryan. Yet officers continued to turn the house upside down, tossing out dresser drawers, dumping out storage bins. Not really sure what the point of all that was, except to just make a disaster of their house. Obviously, this so-called Ryan person that they are looking for, who has supposedly shot someone dead inside the home, was not hiding himself or a dead body in a storage bin full of Lisa Finch's collectibles. And in an even more disturbing twist to this whole thing, as police systematically tore Lisa's house apart from top to bottom, Tyler Barris actually called the City Hall back and asked to be connected directly to 911 because he obviously couldn't dial 911 in Wichita from where he was in Los Angeles. It was during this second call when he went into more details about the shooting and pouring gasoline all over the house. Tyler had not realized that the swatting had already gone terribly wrong. And it does not seem that officers were immediately aware that another 911 call had come in regarding the address that they were already at, at which they had already gunned down Andrew. It was when the new emergency call from Tyler was radioed out to officers who were in the process of tearing Lisa's house apart, did it begin to sink in what exactly it was that they were looking at here. There was no gun, as Tyler had described. The house was a two-story house, not a one-story house, as Tyler had told them in his call. There was no gasoline poured all over the house. There was no father shot dead or little brother being held hostage with his mom. And most importantly, There was no gun anywhere on or around Andrew Finch. Shane Gaskell messaged Tyler Barris to taunt him some more. About an hour after the swatting went down, he sent a message to Tyler via social media. And please excuse the language, Dreamers. This shit has me dying. They showed up at my old house, retard. Shane Gaskell used to live at the McCormick Street House. His family was evicted the year prior. Tyler messaged him back and said, You gave an address that you don't live at, but you're acting tough, so you're a bitch. Shane replied, Anyways, good job, but you failed the mission because I told the fuck out of you guys. After that, Shane suggested that Tyler delete the tweet that he had made that had the direct message with the wrong address that he had given to Tyler, but Tyler did not delete it. As word got around that Andrew's death was being attributed to a hoax emergency call, and it is believed to be the very first time a death has come as a result of a swatting event, Shane contacted Tyler again and said that the three of them needed to delete everything. This had turned into a murder. But based on Tyler's actions, he was not appearing to be all that concerned that his hoax call actually led to Andrew's death. He ended up tweeting about it, letting his followers know that the house he swatted was on the news. But the Twitter warriors immediately began attacking Tyler for causing Andrew's death. He responded to all the vitriol by tweeting out, quote, I did not get anybody killed because I did not discharge a weapon and being a SWAT member is not my profession. This only made Twitter users even more angry at him. Andrew's death was his fault. If not for his swatting, this never would have happened. The following day, Tyler Barris actually conducted an interview with a YouTuber named Daniel Keem, who has a show called Drama Alert, which typically talks about internet and social media personalities. But he got Tyler to actually talk to him the day after Andrew's death. So Daniel asked him what happened and Tyler told him he was minding his own business using the computer at the library when this guy Casey Viner messaged him and said this guy just gave me his address and he thinks nothing's going to happen do you want to prove him wrong? Tyler agreed telling the person who messaged him that he loves swatting kids who think it's not really going to happen. So Tyler got on Twitter and followed the target of the swatting and this would be Shane Gaskill So when Shane noticed that Swatistic was following him on Twitter, he sent Tyler a direct message with his address, basically daring him to go ahead and swat him. And after that, an attempt to swat that address was made. Daniel Keem asked Tyler, Okay, so you did the swatting. You put in the fake hostage situation. And Tyler said that he did. And then this guy gets killed. And Tyler said, Yeah, that's what happened, I guess. So Daniel confronted Tyler with his Twitter message about not getting anyone killed because he didn't discharge a weapon and being a SWAT member wasn't his profession. He asked Tyler if he takes any responsibility for what happened, and Tyler said, well, the argument can be made that the police would have never shown up if I hadn't made the call, but he did not believe that he was the only guilty party involved in this incident because he was not only contacted to SWAT this address, But also taunted into doing so. He's basically saying, yeah, he made the call, but there were others involved in the whole thing the officer who pulled the trigger, the guy who made the call, the person who gave the address. Anyway, for the majority of the conversation, Tyler deflected blame and danced around the questions. Daniel asked him what he would have to say to the family of the man that he killed. Two kids lost their dad, a mother lost her son what would you have to say? And Tyler just said, well, if that's how you want to look at it, I wasn't the only one involved in this. So, I don't know, dreamers. I guess it's not surprising that Tyler would get on this interview and be dodgy and evasive with his answers. He is a guy that was incapable of showing remorse and he kept going back to pointing fingers at everyone else that had a hand in setting off this chain of events leading to Andrew's death. The investigation moved along pretty quickly from that point for a couple of reasons. For one, the investigation into Tyler's activities had been ongoing for about a month since he called in that bomb scare at the high school in Panama City Beach, Florida. Lieutenant Talamentez became aware of the death in Wichita, which resulted from a swatting event. So Talamentez got on his social media and started messaging Tyler. He said, bro, WTF? Those dumbass cops really shoot someone? Tyler said, yeah. Talamantes asked, WTF did he do to get shot? You worried? Tyler replied, he answered the door. Talamantes said, effing cops, man. They shot someone over here the other day for no reason. You think they're going to come after you? If you need a place to lay low, you can crash at my pad. Tyler said he thinks he'll be okay. So from the conversation, Talamantes was able to at least see that Tyler was not denying that he was behind the swatting in Wichita. So he called up law enforcement in Kansas and shared the information that he had about Tyler up to that point. Talamantes' investigation had been kind of dragging on, but Andrew Finch's death really got things going on the case. Not only were investigators in Wichita receiving tips about the ABC News station bomb hoax that Tyler was convicted of two years earlier... But also Twitter users were also quick to out Tyler Barris as being the person behind the SWATistic Twitter account. They weren't interested in adhering to any sort of gamer's code of silence. Not in this case. Within a day of Andrew's death, Tyler Barris was arrested. But as for Andrew's mom, Lisa, though she holds Tyler responsible on some level... She mostly holds the Wichita Police Department responsible for his death. The officer who shot her son was more than 40 yards away from the front porch of the home, and she does not believe that he was in a position to make the determination as to how much of a threat Andrew was as he stepped out onto that porch. Because there were officers right there on both sides of the front door, those officers would have had a much better view of Andrew and whether or not he was armed and dangerous. Lisa retained the services of an attorney and she went on a mission to take on the Wichita Police Department. The attorney that she hired was a man named Andrew Stroth. He had left his practice representing clients in professional sports and entertainment, having represented high-profile clients such as Dwayne Wade and Michael Vick, to instead specialize in cases involving victims of police brutality. The community wanted to see Officer Justin Rapp prosecuted for killing Andrew, and they also wanted to see the city's top cop put in his resignation. Meanwhile, Tyler Barris had been extradited to Kansas in order to face a litany of charges. The D.A. had been trying to figure out if it would be possible to prosecute Tyler for murder. But after reviewing all of the facts of the case, the DA decided that a charge of involuntary manslaughter was the best thing for this case. Casey Viner and Shane Gaskell were also arrested and made to face their own set of charges in this case as well. Even though the DA was moving forward with the charges against these three, the public still wanted to see Officer Rapp charged as well. But a little more than three months after Andrew's death, the D.A. announced that they would not be charging Officer Rapp with anything, stating in a report in the findings on the case, quote, This shooting should not have happened, but this officer's decision was made in the context of the false call. To charge Officer Rapp would require evidence, not 2020 hindsight, that it was unreasonable for him to believe that in the moment that the man who came to the door posed a risk to the officers near the house there is insufficient evidence to overcome self-defense immunity under Kansas law. Following that decision, Lisa decided to take her issues up with the Wichita Police Department to the upcoming City Hall meeting. She wrote a long speech she intended to deliver, and even though she had a strict time limit of five minutes, she was not going to be silenced because her time was up. She talked about her grief over the loss of Andrew. She talked about the report written following the decision to not charge Officer Rapp. The mayor of Wichita tried to get Lisa to finish up, but she dismissed him in the same manner as he was attempting to dismiss her. Lisa continued accusing Officer Rapp of being trigger happy and wondered why, if the police felt as though they were confronting a hostage situation, Why did they not even take the time to consider perhaps someone was using Andrew as a shield as they came to the front door? More than 20 minutes into her speech, the mayor attempted to get Lisa to finish up again, offering to speak to her one-on-one in his office at a later time. But she again refused, encouraged by her supporters to keep going. But by that time, someone had cut her mic but she kept going for about five more minutes even though she mostly could not be heard. On May 23rd, 2018, Tyler Barris, Casey Viner, and Shane Gaskill were all indicted in federal court on a variety of charges stemming from the December 28th swatting incident. Tyler was charged with providing false information, cyber-stalking resulting in a death, making threats of death or damage to property by fire, Interstate threats, conspiracy to make false reports, and wire fraud. Casey Viner was charged with wire fraud, obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and conspiracy to make false reports. Shane Gaskell was charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and wire fraud. And additional charges came about when it was revealed a couple months later that Shane Gaskill attempted to get Tyler to try swatting him again, following the fatal shooting. Casey Viner, the one who sought out Tyler Barris and his swatting, pleaded guilty to the conspiracy and obstruction of justice and was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Following that, he would be on probation for two years, during which time he was not allowed to play video games online. Shane Gaskell, the target of the swatting, appeared as though he was going to go to trial and early on, it looked as though he could be facing as many as 60 years in federal prison if convicted of everything. But from what I could see online, it looked as though his attorney applied for him to partake in a pre-trial diversion program for first-time offenders and subsequently the charges were dropped and all he was made to do was pay a $1,000 fine. On November 13th, 2018, Tyler Barris accepted a plea. He pleaded guilty to the 51 federal charges against him and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, to which he was formally sentenced earlier this year on March 29, 2019. Tyler is 26 years old today and is currently housed at the Phoenix, Arizona Federal Corrections Institution. His release date is set for January 14, 2035. At that time, he'll be 41 years old. Lisa Finch's civil lawsuit against the city of Wichita and its police department is still ongoing. And yet, in another sad footnote to this tragedy, Lisa Finch lost another loved one on January 11th, 2019. Her granddaughter, Adelina, whom she raised after her mother died in that car accident back in 2002, attempted to take her own life by way of a self-inflicted gunshot wound the day before, on January 10th. Adelina survived for one day, ultimately succumbing to her injuries the following day on January 11th. She was only 18 years old lisa finch attributes her granddaughter's suicide to her inability to cope with what she witnessed the day her uncle was killed in front of her having to step over him having to listen as he drew his final breath all of it was more than adelina could take and that brings this 110th episode of california dreaming to a close I would encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases we cover, share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcast that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes. Come on over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page, and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I'd like to take the time to wish the following people a happy birthday. Danny J. on October 1st. Jessica L. on October 2nd. Elizabeth C. and Anya K. on the 4th. Julie H. and Monica D. on the 5th, Monica J. on the 6th, Melanie D. on the 7th, Gracie B. and Karen V. on the 8th, Ariana V. and Donna J. on the 9th, Helen M. on the 11th, and Marcy K. and Maureen W. on the 12th. Happy Birthday! California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. A podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. There are some new California Dreaming designs. You can order your mug your t-shirts, your hoodies, all sorts of stuff to represent your favorite true crime podcast. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin. and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries podcast. Our podcast follows the '80s and '90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. We have a love for true crime and the unsolved. If you don't remember Unsolved Mysteries, we forgive you, but you don't have to know to get into our show. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, or just stories about weird shit like Bigfoot, this is your podcast. The stories we cover range from totally ridiculous to truly heartbreaking. We do detailed research on. All of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired. Then drink some wine and give you the latest updates on every case. We talk about stories that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher,